I'm Adrian Baker, and this is Redesigning the Dharma. Today, I'm speaking with Ryan Elke. Ryan is the lead teacher and translator of Awakening in Life and the co-founder of Buddhist Geeks. He is a Buddhist Geeks teacher and is a certified teacher in Judith Blackstone's realization process. Ryan also has an MSED in counseling psychology and over 18 years' experience in meditation, particularly in the Tibetan Buddhist and Dzogchen lineages. Ryan teaches an integral path of embodied, responsive presence and invites others into the mystery of their own lived experience and embodiment. His approach is grounded in the foundation of waking up and includes cleaning up, healing, growing up, and showing up in the world. He also has a BA in Spanish, three years of graduate study of classical Tibetan and translation, and is a passionate learner and teacher of languages. This is a two-part conversation, and in the first episode, Ryan and I speak about our personal experiences with Buddhism, the practice of Dharma, and Vajrayana and Dzogchen in particular. We discuss our journeys of becoming practitioners and teachers and the impact of certain teachings and figures like Ken Wilber and Namkai Norbert Rinpoche. The episode also discusses the importance of experimenting with different traditions, maintaining an open mind, and navigating the relationship with one's primary spiritual teacher or root guru. And here's my conversation with Ryan. So before we dive into your background, if you could just contextualize a little bit for the audience, briefly describe what is it that you do. In recent years, I've been focused on teaching Dharma pretty much in different capacities. So I'm doing a lot of 10-week trainings, which we kind of came across a nice model at Buddhist Geeks, especially Vince Horn and Emily Horn designing those 10-week trainings. And during the pandemic, a lot of people were at home working, but also with flexibility or not working. So a lot of those, but also a lot of private sessions. I'm now moving in actually into an evolving context where I'm going to be focused more on leadership coaching, executive coaching, things like that, where very much integrates an integral background. And I'm sitting with the question of how to bring in the wisdom and the experiences I've had from Sogjin into this kind of context explicitly. And I think the environment's opening up in general across culture. I mean, we see meditation now being embraced by everybody. seems like everybody meditates just like everybody does yoga. But, you know, it's opening up the funnel there, I think, for more and more depth, presence, and working with awareness. So yeah, I'm still teaching Dharma, mainly through private sessions, though, these days. I like the private sessions quite a lot because it's much more organic and responsive to what's going on in a person's life. We need that foundation of structured teachings and practices, but there's no way around it. If we can't adapt it and integrate it into our life, then I don't know, what are we doing? Basically, would be my question. Yeah. I'd love to hear you say more about that because I can really resonate with that. There's something about me, at, at least at this point, I'm, I'm very much drawn to one-on-one as opposed to groups. And I'm mm-hmm. curious because you've really done quite a lot of both. Yeah. And what is it that over time has drawn you more and more to the one-on-ones? So I still do like group settings that a range of 10, 15, 20 people. There's something special there because there's a stronger feeling of practicing as a we. That happens for sure in the relational space of one-on-one, but obviously there's a different degree of intimacy in both settings. But I found that the 10-week trainings, the strength is that it provides people with, again, a strong foundation. You can get classic, you know, get a view, get some core teachings, get some practices, making sure it's very practice focused. And so you have more in your toolbox. You got a map, you got ways to orient, you got things to work with. So I think that sets people up really well. And that's still a great way to practice and learn together. And so I enjoy that, but I partly there's, (laughs) 
the the amount of people who are doing that shrunk a little bit because so many people did it during the pandemic. Yeah. So I think there was this influx across life, not just in inside of meditation and awakening, but everybody shifted a little bit. It was like, okay, we were doing something for like whatever, two years. And now people want something a little different when you got done. But the private one-on-one space, I've grown to love how the relationship unfolds over time. When I first started teaching privately, I treated it more as an a la carte kind of thing. And partly that was just me finding my seat as a teacher. So, you know, it's like, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to, not going to be too bold here. I'm, I'm here and available if uh, people need help and also finding my own confidence. But what I found over time is that it, it's hard to get traction in transformation and awakening and, and have teachings and practices really work us over unless there's some consistency over time. But in the context of a real relationship, the ups and downs of life, twists and turns. And so that's been quite nice. So I've got to work with some people for a few years now and starting to really see how that evolution happens over time in real time. And yeah, I think we can relax into it a little bit more, all of us, you know, in that context, teacher and student, but you just relax and say, what is this practice actually about? Why the hell are we practicing? What is this for? How does it matter in life? It helps to also break down, I think, ideals and certain obstacles that are hard to do because everybody, it depends on where somebody's at, right? So we can use stage models. So if somebody is gunning for enlightenment, so to speak, and they're in those first couple stages, well, then it's just like, yeah, excitement and give somebody a practice and coach them along, right? But at some point to progress, to awaken deeper, you just have to let go. You have to let go of practice in a certain way or what you expect out of practice, what we hope for, the disappointment from anything that we had hoped for. And when that starts happening, then it can really permeate more easily into life and life can be brought into practice. So I think that happens much more easily in a deep, intimate relationship that happens over time. And that's, of course, that's the tradition, especially where coming from in Vajrayana, certainly the case yeah, in Zen the really... too, you know, but it's, it's how you learn anything. It's kind of the apprenticeship model. Yeah. Well, you have a good point about the flavor and style of awakening, especially in Sogjin. I'll give a perfect example. So Lama Lina is someone who I really love as a teacher, and she does lots of teaching online through YouTube, lots of live streams. So I always recommend her. If you go to her YouTube channel and look at uh, live streams, she's teaching all the time, but I had a student who did uh, one of her retreats and I've done some in-person stuff with La Malina, but I haven't done one of those retreats. So I was just curious. And he said that you get together once she gives you like the general practice and there's just a lot of Q and A. And then she's like, okay, now go practice. You know, and you're committing to a certain amount of practice in the midst of your life. And then you swing back around and you get to ask her all the questions you have. Mm. <laughs> That's it. So you heard the word retreat, right? And if you come from say insight tradition, I mean, really not just inside tradition, the plain Tibetan Buddhist tradition, you know, like the month long in the winter at Shambhala and just a dot tune. Or even I've seen like a Pema Chodron, I think it's like a two month. Yeah. But those things, it's like, okay, we're going to be, yeah, we're going to be in practice every day. There's going to be structure all day long. Here we go. So somebody coming in with that mentality into this thing inside of a retreat, and then that's what you're getting. Personally, it's great. I think if you come up with that expectation, that's going to be a shock that is a teaching because it's like I'm grasping, I want a lot more, but it's the informality of it. And Sugjin is, I think, probably the most informal from what I've experienced in Tibetan Buddhism. The practices are plenty of practices, plenty of things you can do, but they get stripped down quite a bit. So that's always resonated with me. I'm much more intuitive. I'm much more loosey-goose. And I, and I like to go where the path takes me, which is interesting because in Tibetan Buddhism, sometimes this gargantuan Olympic path set before us, you know, it's like you start with Mundro and you're yeah. going to go do hundreds and thousands of everything. And then you're going to do this, 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 then you're going to get the boomies and you know, it's just like, holy moly. And so it can be kind of prescriptive in that sense. And so when I found Sogjin personally, I found it when Namkai Norbu taught it, 
how I experienced La Molina. It was kind of like, do what you need to do. Work with your experience where you are. There's nothing else. Completely. And for people yep. who might not know what Dzogchen is, mm. it's a particular stream within Tibetan Buddhism, more associated with the Nyingma yep. tradition. And then you have Mahamudra, associated with Karma Kagyu. It's, uh -huh. it's fundamentally yeah. similar. And I think just to, the way to explain it for people who wouldn't know, it's just moving from kind of form to the formless, which we can see across different yep. meditative traditions. And it's sort of when you learn anything, right? You need to learn forms at first and discipline yep. and effort and technique. And yep. then the more and more over time you let go. But the difference is, I mean, in many traditions, including Vajrayana, you don't let go. I mean, you keep doing those forms. And that's yeah. why Dzogchen is really in many ways, if you look at the actual practice, I often feel I have more in common with a Zen practitioner than with other streams of Vajrayana yeah, totally. practitioners who are doing very elaborate sadhanas. I've got to hang out, hang out with a ton of Zen practitioners, but that was always the vibe I got too. I'm like, oh, okay, like similar languages, I don't know, Spanish and Portuguese. It's kind of like, yeah. oh, it's different, but it feels similar. And something interesting for me, having taught a while and trying to figure out how to articulate a style like Sogjin in this modern context where mindfulness is dominant, it's a default term for what meditation is even just it's mindfulness but everybody who's been in a tradition long enough knows that there's differences there and so similarly it's like a different language and in the tibetan tradition sogjin is placed kind of at the end the pinnacle when it's presented as a linear model but how namkai norbu taught it was not taught like that he did present it like say hey this is how it's traditionally presented and this would be how it would progress but it was not taught like that and so the shorthand that i've given to this and how i experienced sogjin is start with the end and work backwards oh direct introduction to the nature of mind, your, your true nature, you do that first, you get that taste, you start with that and then you see, can I just rest as awareness itself or no? And then I feel into my experience, what is it that I need to work with? Where are the obstacles and what would be the right practice for that? Mm -hmm. So it's not prescriptive, but it also embraces form as needed. So it's responsive in that sense. Throwing in also awareness style practice. So borrowing from the Buddhist geeks model of six ways to meditate, awareness is one style of meditating. I think it's important, even though it's my flavor and my style, and I happen to like it quite a lot, there can be a mistake for people who come from a non-dual background and an awareness background to put it at the top. Like, that's the best way to meditate. No, I need all six ways to meditate. It just so happens that my home base is an awareness and mindfulness does become useful and we use mindfulness in Sogjin, but it's kind of secondary. It's like, okay, I'm going to use that as needed. But also there's practices for integrating into life. The four chokshak is one of my favorite teachings of like, however the body is, that's the position for practice. Mm. However your state of mind is, that's the state of mind for practice. So then it opens up. It's like, oh, okay, so wherever I go, however my body is, that's the practice. This is awareness. So anyways, that's my... Further unpacking of what Sogjin is and how I kind of essentialize it, you know, simplify it in this mindfulness dominant context. I like that. <laughs> that we find ourselves in. I like that. Let's go back a little yeah. bit. To, uh, how did you get into Vajrayana in the first place? And how did you come across Namkai Norbu Rinpoche? Let's see. I was like 20, I think. It's about 25 years ago. Uh, I found Buddhism just organically. I lived in St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, north of Casey, where I'm at right now. You know, small town at that time. Okay. You remember it was the hell year is it? Was it 1999? 98, something like that. Okay. No, I don't know. It was 99 or 2000, something like that. All right. So meditation wasn't all the rage. I mean, you're a weirdo back that day. Yeah. You're into meditation, especially in the Midwest and in a small town. So that was my context. I didn't have any exposure to anybody except for one guy in my music program who talked about some meditation in Kim Wilbur, things like especially that. Especially Tibetan Buddhism. That. Yeah, especially <laughs> Tibetan Buddhism. But somehow, I, I don't know what the first book was, but I remember the Dalai Lama's book, The Art of Happiness, was at mm -hmm. our bookstore. And I remember being drawn to it just naturally. So in some ways, I would say we are inclined 
inclined to embracing past lives and rebirth as is done in Tibetan Buddhism and as I tend to think is just how it is. There's definitely that strong feeling of like there was nobody talking me into this at all. I just was like drawn to it. So I picked up that book. I really loved it in the context of my life. Coming from the suffering path, you know, a doorway was just like trauma and suffering and everything in life and this beautiful path that addressed the suffering but offered so much hope and joy. And Dalai Lama, that's his superpower is just joy, right? So I thought, wow, this is a different way of being. I picked up a few other books, but then I in finding out that there was a Tibetan Buddhist center in Kansas City it's called the Rime Center. They're no longer at that location, unfortunately. It was in like this great old Catholic church. And oh, so it had a great, James. great vibe to it. Contrast. You walk a big stair. <laughs> yeah, it was a contrast. Mm -hmm. But it worked so well because you just walked these big staircases. So you ascended, you know, into the center and it was just a big open space in there. It was really beautiful. And I felt at home immediately. So there was no trying out. That was it. Love at first sight. Kind of funny to think about because of how strange it is in the context of our culture. Oh, yeah. All the tonkas, you know, all this stuff. The whole vibe inside inside the, all the Buddhist lineages. I mean, Tibetan Buddhism is the most forwardly ornate, out front flamboyant. There's no hiding it, but I loved it. I was just like, this is great. And so because it was a Rime Center, Rime means non-sectarian and non-sectarian within Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So the four lineages of Tibetan Buddhism came through that center. So different teachers, I got exposed to different teachers. In that sense, I got to do a little trying out of different teachers. And for sure, Lama Lina and her teacher, Rengdor Rinpoche, came through one time and he did pointing out instructions. And it's pivotal in my life and mind-blowing on multiple levels. One, it was the first time that I had pointing out instructions where I, I got it. And I was like, I just re can remember the moment and how everything felt in, in the remake Center. It was, it was amazing. But Lama Lina translating in real time, which if people are listening to this and they've never seen translation happen, have to understand how difficult and amazing that is, especially in this kind of context. But it was like no gaps. Like, Sorry, just to clarify, you said translation. Yeah. Did you mean transmission or translation? No, no. Lama Lina was translating. Oh, she was translating for... For Wangdo Rinpoche. Okay, gotcha. For pointing out instructions. And there was just no gap, no noise in that signal. It was seamless. So both those experiences at the same time blew me away because I'm a lover of languages and translation. Now, what was interesting is I don't know when that happened. I remember how striking it was for me. But, you know, Wangdo Rinpoche came through, Lamalina came through, and then they left. So the internet was around, you know, but it was not like this. Mm. So it wasn't like, oh, let me follow up and, and hang out more with Wangdo Rinpoche. Actually, I think if he had just been based in Kansas City, I totally would have. But I think it was just like, okay, well, he's off and now I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. So... Yeah, I got to go to all kinds of empowerments and teachings there. It was, it was great. But fast forward, at some point, within like two or three years, I definitely got exposed to Ken Wilbur and I always tell the story. I had that guy in undergrad tell me about Ken. I didn't really know anything. I just didn't remember the name. But then there was this other dude who would show up to the Remake Center. He went to like K-State or Kansas Union and he kept telling me about Ken Wilbur. So an SES came out in 99. That's one of Ken's biggest book, Sex, Ecology, Spirituality for Integral, and it came out in 1999. So that was just like the onset of integral theory and integral dharma. So I guess it was pretty fresh for some people who knew about him, but he kept telling me to read Ken Wilbur. I didn't know the guy, but he was really hopped up about it. And there was a silent retreat. At that time, I was very Buddhisty. I wasn't like razor shaving my head, but I was, you know, I was embodying the whole persona and I would buy it by silence, you know. And, some monk-like, some monk-like Very monk-like, yeah. as much as I could within my life of being an undergrad and doing classes and stuff, like I was definitely monk it up. Yeah. He comes up in the middle of this retreat, opens Ken Wilber's book and plops it in front of me and like literally like points. He's just like slamming the book, read it. And I was irritated. I was like, what the fuck is this guy doing? And But I was like, okay, 
whatever. I'll read this fucking page. And I read it and I liked it. Actually, I was like, all right, you got me. I, I don't even remember what I read. I think it was out of a simple feeling of being or the essential Ken Wilbur. I don't remember one of those things, but I was interested. I was intrigued. I mentioned that because it was through Ken that I heard about Nankai Norbu. And there's two things that happened for me. Ken, one, presents and has always presented Awakening as very real, very pragmatic, very extraordinary, but down to earth. So I also tell the story that like, I remember when I got into the Ken Wilbur's community, I, I got like an email forward of pointing out instructions he gave. That's one thing he does really well. Normally he's just all philosophy and kind of frameworks and he doesn't do teaching. But when he drops out pointing out instructions, they're pretty damn good. They gave pointing out instructions written to somebody and then he was like, now just go have a beer. So you got to think, I was this monk-like Buddhist practitioner practicing a little bit in the Gelug style. Hmm. which has a very different vibe than Sogjin. Yeah, can you explain that a little for folks who don't Yeah, Gaelug. So I was doing Lamrib. Yeah, sorry. And it's been a while since I practiced Lamrib, but there are all these stages that you go through. And there's, Sogjin is just kind of like, just go for it, jump in the pool. And Lamrim is like, we're going to get you fucking prepped. Mm -hmm. We're going to go through all the protocols. You're going to go through everything one step at a time. And you're going to do it very thoroughly. And for me at that time, I, my impression was like, waking is going to take you a long time, probably multiple lifetimes. Yep. Just strap in. But I, there's a lot of good in there. It's just not my vibe. If I could just bookmark yeah. that for people, that's a larger tension in Dharma for people who are newer, that debate between how scholastic it is versus the more yogi, direct yeah. experience, emphasis on yeah. meditation. We really see that even beyond Vajrayana. Yeah. Totally. And just to say something about that, I got a master's in counseling psychology and then I went to Naropa, which was a dream to be in Boulder and go to Naropa. And I did three years of the Indo-Tibetan Buddhist program, did all the Tibetan language. I even taught a year of the Tibetan and I, I did drop out though. I did three years. I already did a master's <laughs> and then I did three years. It was expensive and other things happened. I went through a divorce. I got to produce a cool TV show. It was a whole pivot point for me in my life. But I remember sitting in Madhyamaka class. Mm. So Madhyamaka, again, maybe you'll unpack it better than me, but Madhyamaka is like kind of the pinnacle of Mahayana, especially from a view standpoint, a teaching standpoint. It just like negates everything that we can try to find any substance and it's just emptiness everywhere. And Nargajunas, was it four negations or is it eight? I can't remember. I've um, forgotten as well. I never got super into yeah. Madhyamaka. I, I studied it a bit, well, but I just naturally came to the direct experience more. Well, yeah. yeah. So if you're similar to me, yeah. that, that's my experience. So when I was in there, I'm just like, this sucks. Like mm. for me, not, not the teachings are bad. Just like, this is not my vibe. I can't get down with this. But I did recognize that moment. I'm like, listen, some people, this is what works. Getting into that kind of Madhyamaka intellectually powerful path that's what works for them to then open them up into emptiness but it's not me yeah i think bob thurman's a great example of that and he's someone who helped me to appreciate it yeah totally so exactly so i totally appreciate it and even more so now i've matured over time in that moment it was more reactive but i still even in that moment i was like listen i know this is going to be good for some people but this isn't i can't do it i dropped out for many other reasons but i remember that was another moment where i was just like i don't think i'm going to finish the class and that was a tough one because i loved completing my classes and getting my a's but I fully left it. Anyways, circling back around to finding Kin and then Namkai Norbu. So having been very kind of monk-like, really full-blown Buddhist dude, a Gelug kind of path of like, it's going to be a long path to get to awakening versus like right now in this moment, then finding Kin and saying, no, waking up is totally, absolutely doable in this moment. And it's done through so many different traditions as well. And we have the benefit, the wisdom of all these different traditions to help us wake up in different ways. It just felt very real, especially again, I gave that silly example of him telling somebody to go drink a beer because that just cuts through. It's like, wait a minute, I've been intentionally not drinking alcohol. I was a vegetarian. I was doing everything like abstinence doing renunciation hey, no <laughs> i guess i could never 
that's a tough one in your early 20s. You, yeah. You, you, you got me. I did not go that far. That's funny, man. Somebody, if somebody, I don't think I ever had that pointed out to me in my 20s, that contradiction within that renunciate right. kind of vibe. Well, because the most, just... the most powerful and difficult <laughs> one, like it wasn't even yeah. conceivable that you would entertain that. I, I never once thought of it <laughs> now that you're asking me, like it never crossed my mind. I've been like, no, 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 buddy. <laughs> that one's staying in. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what I would have said at that time as my reasoning. I'm sure I would have rationalized it somehow. Yeah. But yeah, no, everything else though. Had to ask. <laughs> I didn't know how far you were taking it. That's a it. good one. Yeah. That's a great question. I love that you asked because I never thought about it actually literally until you asked me. So I had that shift and there was a heart gut twisting recognition. I remember being in a dorm room in the summer I was working on campus and reading through Ken and just having this deep sense that I had to change how I was practicing to a hard pivot. There was like grief almost in it. It wasn't like excitement. Like there was excitement when I first found Ken. Like ooh, I highlighted the shit out of a theory of everything. But in that moment, I was like, I need to switch this up. I can't keep going down this way of practicing. I need to go this direction. And so there's a sense of loss. It was like a sense of breaking up with some somebody I had loved and saying like, oh, it doesn't work. Hmm. Oh, okay. Death and birth. Yeah. So it was a very honest switch. And then I saw that he mentioned Nankai Norobu. That time, I don't remember. I probably had already had that experience with Wengdor Rinpoche. I might have already picked up self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness, which is one of my favorite texts from Padmasambhava, from Yingma and Sogjin. And from the cycle of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's how to practice and wake up in this life immediately. And I remember picking up that book at the Remay Center. And then I remember reading it in college out bench looking up at the sky and that zapping me just through this book. So there's these different callings to Sogjin. I saw Namkai Nurbu at that time. I looked for where there were little communities. And again, I don't remember how this happened because the internet, it wasn't awesome at that time. So I don't even know how I found it, but I found there was in Chicago, a community. And so I drove from basically Kansas City up to Chicago just to go do a transmission. So at that time, Namkai Nurbu was doing VCR transmission. So he would transmit where he was at in the world. Everybody would have their videotapes of him giving a transmission and everybody would play play at the exact same time so then his live transmission would happen at the exact moment of the of the video so you talk <laughs> there's an interesting belief was, there that is yes. worth unpacking at some point yeah totally right yeah totally there's a whole bunch there of like why is that needed also funny though that he, in the context of dependent tradition that was innovative oh yeah pushing the edge yeah. outside of that and taking a bigger perspective like redesigning the dharma like you just said have some questions about the beliefs baked into that which i think or fair to ask. That's what I did. I went up there, drove all the way up there, hung out with that crowd. And that was wild, man, because again, being vegetarian and not drinking everything along with that, they did the Ghana Puja and then Ghana Puja and Sok Jin and Lankan Orba's community. It's like a gathering. It's a bunch of practicing, but there's a feast that's happening during the practice and then a party afterwards, essentially. But in the Ghana Puja, everybody brings food and you're supposed to take something from everything. So everything is included. It's a teaching, it's a practice, but done through the food, but there has to be meat and there has to be alcohol. And so, and Tantric. I didn't know that when I showed up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember if I actually ate any meat or drank at that one because I was like in, a little bit in shock because I didn't expect it, but that was another shift. Yeah. Like not even an integral perspective or taking the tradition as an object. It was just, even in that tradition, that was just shocking and in a good way, ultimately. Yeah. It's a more so left-handed Tantra, but a classical kind of left-handed Tantra. Totally, yeah. totally. I just hadn't been exposed to it up until that point. Yeah, but I dug the vibe and just kept going with it and eventually just went all in. I, I really loved how Namkai Norbu taught. It was very practical, very responsive. The poetic language is everything. To this day, I still love many of the teachings. I'll just pick them up and they're just great out of the box. So yeah, that was definitely highlights of how I 
found my way there. Yeah. Can I linger on that for a second? Because sure. you said you love language. And I found yeah. that there's a deep connection between contemplative traditions and yeah. art. I think for a lot of people, you can really teach meditation as a science. And that's really beautiful. For me, I really feel it's more of an art. It's not trying to grasp at anything. Yeah. And so I'm curious, yeah. could you yeah. say a little more about how Nam Kai Norbu used language in a way that really moved you? What did you learn from him as a practitioner and a teacher? Yeah. That's a great question. So I got to attend multiple teachings with him or streams, live streams, in-person live streams, but then also a lot of his writing. So essentially what would happen is a lot of the texts that you could get were transcribed from live teachings he gave. Hmm. Now he has a few really great books that were published in the sense of trying to be a published written book. But even those share something in common with all the other books in that how conversational they are. When I read them, I feel as if it's just like what you and I are doing here. There's a deep informality to it that's very warm, also inspiring. Again, in that sense of like, this is real. This is who I am. This is who we are. And practice just makes us, helps us to recognize that more easily and integrate it. So that's one of the standout, I think, things that Namkai Norbu did. Now, he spoke English as a second language. If we're going to put his uh, fluency on one of the scales. So I, I tend to like the European language fluency scale. There's six levels. Top one would be like perfectly fluent. Next one down is like, you're really, really functional, but you still make some mistakes. I think he was kind of like that fifth level or maybe even fourth level. So his English wasn't perfect, but it didn't matter. It was totally good enough. But in that sense, I wonder how much of his poetic nature got to come fully through in his English. But I'll give you an example of something amazing. He had a path, a structured path that he created if people wanted to take it up called the Santi Sangha. And there was a base level, which I did most of that. And then there were like these other levels and it gets more Olympic because it's so gen. The, the first level for the base level, in my opinion, is incredibly thorough. A person does all of that. You got to move through several stages of awakening. But that text had an even shorter poetic text. And what happens is in the teaching, it's amazing. So they're like stanzas, four lines each. But what happens is because of the Tibetan language, because Tibetan language is more fluid and intuitive, and there's a lot of implication inside of all the syllables and everything. So there's a line of four and each line starts with the same word. Next stanza, a new word starts each of the four. But at the end, all of those single words end up becoming this masterful poem at the end. Hmm. You got to think about how, how to do that in language. To write several stanzas where you're using the same word over and over for each, you know, one stanza, two stanza, and then that becomes this amazing poem at the end. It comes across in English, like the beauty of it and the essentializing. It's not overly conceptual. Madhyamaka is on one end, this Santi Sangha poem is on the other end. Right. Which is what Dzogchen's about, yeah. breaking things down to the essence. Yeah. Pointing so that's literally being poetic, you know, and how it's pointed to. And, and being playful. I find that with Sogjin in general, whether it's Namkai Norobu or La Malina or Padmasambhava or Longchimpa, you know, from way back in the day, you'll find playfulness. Yes. So I love that. I think that's important. This is where like we take a more integral perspective and say, what does every lineage and tradition have to offer? I think that's what Sogjin has to offer inside the Buddhist context is the playfulness of being alive mm. and of awakening. Yeah. So Namkai Norobu did that wonderfully. Yeah, that's beautiful. I really resonate that. I feel like when I look at the few teachers that had the biggest impact on me, 
I would say Sokni Rinpoche, Sally Kempton, mm. who was Shaiva Shakti Zantra, mm. and Nadia Shanti. Mm. In mm. particular, I would say Sokni Rinpoche and Sally just really emphasize playfulness. Mm. And that's something that I just really try to highlight for people. You know, I think I love that. that's one of the most important things in meditation practice, you know, and I, I view that as it's really it's part of the way it gets filtered through Tibetan culture. And I'm sure other Himalayan cultures, mm -hmm. Nepali culture, Bhutanese culture as well, but mm. it's a cultural thing, you know, whereas Zen, it has the beautiful qualities of Japanese culture, that Bushido yeah. element, but it's yeah. serious. It doesn't have that sort of looseness and playfulness, more feminine yeah. approach that we see in Tibetan. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, typologically, you know, I have friends who come from Zen, who come from, you know, insight and other traditions as well, but yeah. That's the difference. And so like, again, if it's just on a personal level, where do I find my home at? It sounds like similar to you. It's like at the Zen context, be like mm. a poke, you know, yeah. or like pull a prank or something. <laughs> it's totally too like, much. But also at the same time, I'm like, man, some of those Zen practitioners are fucking tough. And oh, yeah. I respect that as well. So I'm like, yeah. Tapas. I got this over Discipline. Here. Serious yeah. discipline. Discipline. Drive. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, which I love. I love yeah. that too. And I'm conscious of speaking to people at different levels on this podcast. There are people who are super into Dharma and geeking out with us and people who are more beginner. And so I want to yeah. ask some questions that are hitting people at all levels. Great. I think a good thing that I'd love for us to inquire into for people who are newer to meditation, I think there's a healthy balance between finding a style that naturally aligns with your personality yeah. and your sensibility and at the same yeah. time pushes you a little bit. Yeah. We want to maybe yeah. go against the grain a bit, but not too against the grain. Right. And one thing I've noticed from practicing in a lot of different Dharma and yoga communities, you really see the personality oh. part come through. So Zen or like Mahasi style, you wow. know, like you get these wow. really hardcore discipline type A personality types, and then yep. you can get sort of the more looser, laid back, playful people in Vajrayana. And it's interesting because yep. you want to be with what suits you well. But on the other hand, maybe some of the laid back Vajrayana people could deal with some more structure and the Zen people could use with some more yeah. playfulness. So how would totally. you describe that to people in terms of finding a yeah. style and a tradition yep. that suits them in terms of being aligned, but also pushing a little bit? Yeah, it's a very good point. And I will go back to this a lot. I'm a big fan of just saying whatever works. Hmm. And I mean that in so many ways. So if a person finds themselves in a tradition or an approach that just feels amazing and that's what's working for them, great. If somebody wants to go the opposite route, they have that feeling. They're like, I need something different than me. And that's how they start. If it's worked for them, great. I trust that if they're really committed to the path and have teachers and a community, self-correction and, and adaptation will happen inevitably. Yeah. So I trust it enough to I don't need to tweak it up front. That being said, what I think tends to happen is that people tend to go with an approach that feels much more of who they are, at least in that moment, in that time of their life. But I think it tends to be deep down a little bit more of like who they are typologically. But at a certain point, they're going to have to switch it up and let go of it because they're going to have to try something very different because otherwise they're awakening, especially again, if I use that word integral, but like in life, if it's to be more robust and integrated in life, we're going to have to embrace different styles of practice and different ways of practicing, which means experimenting with other traditions. And most people I know have experimented with at at least one other and with a lot of sincerity, if not two. I think three is a pretty good magic number. You find any teacher these days, our age, boomers, you know, they've, that's what they've done. They might've had one person they studied with a lot in the beginning, but then a couple others that they also fell in love with and yeah, made their practice and their awakening deeper, more nuanced or responsive. 
So I think that's what happens. And so I know like if people come to me and they're really into the awareness style, well, here's what happened. They've either done mindfulness a whole bunch mm. and then they come to me and, and you know, the car, you know, wait a minute, we're going this direction now. And we have to undo habits and saying like mindfulness is totally great. It's just that you got to practice a different way now. What's going to help you deepen and kind of move past where you feel stuck is going to be something different, opposite, like awareness. But then people who love awareness, like me, they might be like, non-dual and awareness, that's where it's at. And I'll be like, nope. Yeah. That's what you think right now. But that's an attachment to that. Yeah. And you do need other ways of practicing. Go do a bunch of mindfulness or whatever it might be. Um, heartfulness, mm. you know, because there's different ways of like working with mind, body, and heart as well in terms of styles. Yeah. And ways of waking up. So it's like, how much are we awakening from our heart? How much from our gut? How much from our body? And I think that also tends to invite people into practicing in other ways. So my response would be like to trust the process and try to have people in your life where you can talk openly about practice. So that way, you know, you cook where you're at. If it's working, you get the most out of it. And then at some point it's going to gas out, you know, you're going to feel the breaks and you're going to feel the pain points of only practicing in that way. And you'll have that reflected more by hanging out with other people yeah. who are different and have varied experience. If you're only practicing like with one teacher who does only that style and they've only ever done that style and you're hanging out with fellow practitioners who've done the same, then a little trouble. And that happens a lot. Yeah. And you just double down. Well, what's in a traditional Dzogchen or Vajrayana context, I think one great thing about that, as opposed to some other traditions where it's just about the formless, pure awareness that's built into the mm -hmm. system, you know, Sokni Rinpoche, Minya Rinpoche will say, you can try it. Yes. You can just do Zokchen or Mahamudra and see what yes. that's like. My experience is that it gets a little dry. Do some Tonglen, yeah. do some White Tara practice. That and yeah. that to me is the difference between Vajrayana or Shavashakta Tantra and Zen. We're bringing in the deity yoga. We're bringing in yeah. the heartfulness practices and it gives it that rasa. It gives it that juiciness and flavor yeah. and love. Totally. I'm glad you brought that up because I remember now another kind of pivotal moment that I remember on the path is like once I started practicing with Namkai Narbu and then kind of culminated in a month-long solitary retreat in Massachusetts out at Segulgar. It was really like three and a half weeks solo, but then there was like a week a long small group retreat with Jim Balby, who was one of Namkai Norbu's longtime students, and he taught Santima Sangha. I remember him in that retreat explicitly talking about, hey, as Sokjin practitioners, we can go practice with everybody, no problem, which was a point to be made inside of the context of Tibetan Buddhism. That was the first time I heard it stated in that way, like literally go practice. And they, he listed off people he wouldn't practice with from different lineages and everything. So it was kind of like this sense of like, be open, go explore. Mm. And I remember that I didn't feel that open at that time. It was at that moment where I was like, so I think it's easier to take that approach these days in this, in this context where we're exposed to so many different traditions all at once, like immediate access and seeing everybody online talking about it. I think it was a little bit more difficult 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And that's very much in the tradition, certainly of Tantra. It's true in um, Shaiva Chakta Tantra and yeah. it's true in Vajrayana. It's, it's common yeah. to have to study with many different teachers. It's yeah, that analogy yeah. of the bee going to different yeah. flowers. I really resonate with that approach. And I also love that there's an emphasis on the root guru. I think there's importance of having a primary teacher so that when you do encounter inevitable conflict between different points of view, you do have that hierarchy and say, no, there's clarity. I'm deferring to this person. And you take your time. This is an interesting yeah. topic here yeah. for sure. I, I don't know where I land on it, but I'm glad you brought it oh, up. Oh, I'd love to hear it. Appreciate your perspective's different. No, I don't even know if I have a different perspective. There's some things in how the root guru ideal is presented in, in traditional Tibetan Buddhism where sometimes I don't resonate with that. Say more. 
maybe it's a little bit too idealistic about enlightenment scandals and stuff that have happened mm -hmm. in Tibetan Buddhism. This is not unique to Tibetan Buddhism, but no. <laughs> there's lots of traditions where there's this guru ideal. I don't think it's inherently bad. Just there are definitely some problems that have come to light, obviously, by this point, old news. So I won't get into it because, yeah. But as far as like what is good about it, here's some of the challenges. Back when I was growing up in Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> in Missouri. In Missouri, I just told you all what I do. I had to drive to fucking Chicago to watch a VCR tape of a transmission while the teacher was giving transmission somewhere else. That was the exposure. So it's like, how the hell am I going to have a real relationship with somebody when that's limitations? It's not the same thing as being in Tibet a thousand years ago, like at least how we idealize it, where it's just like, here's a monastery maybe, and you're hanging out with this teacher all the time, or you're a yogi and you find a master and you live with them and hang out with them. It's like, no, the, now this is a world stage and these teachers are traveling everywhere, especially that time, right? Because it was still blossoming like, whoa, Tibetan Buddhism, you know, Dalai Lama. But my, when I picked up that book, that was, I mean, he really blew up on the American stage with that book. It was a New York mm. Times bestseller. So it's like a world tour. They're like rock stars, right? And that's not a relationship in the way that I feel like a relationship is organically mm. compared to some of the mentors I've worked with where being able to have a conversation like this yeah. was- Person to person. You know, it was so transformative. It was so needed. It was a totally different thing. So this is not like, I don't want to put an either or here, but I definitely like, I always felt that where I'm like, no, I, I, don't, I don't have a personal relationship. And I know that past that, we're only going to say, well, there's a special, some sort of special sauce that mm -hmm. happens. And that person, you keep having that special sauce with them wherever they're at, but that still doesn't take away the fact that we're all walking a path and we need a real relationship that's ongoing along with our path. I remember Norm Kynorbu had an email and he would let people send emails, but he had to many. Remember Bruce Almighty? You remember that movie? Do. Jim Carrey? Yes. He, so Jim Carrey complaining all the time about his life and keeps blaming God, you know, traditional mythic God played by Morgan Freeman. And so Oops. Morgan Freeman gives him, yeah, of course, gives him the power of God. And uh, he gets cocky and starts doing everything. He's going, I'm going to save everybody. And he, he all of a sudden starts to hear everybody's prayers everywhere. And it's just like completely mind melting and overwhelming. So he tries to figure out the system and he's like, oh, I'm going to put up the email. So they all get downloaded. To, you got mail. And he's responding to everybody. And then he's, you know, it's like going super fast. And he's probably and he's like hits it and he still has like a billion emails left. <laughs> to get to. So like that, I sent him an email and I got like a one line response and none of it was helpful. Very cool that he even tried. Mm. He did get back in, to you. Got back eventually yeah. with a single line. Um, so sincerity, like he totally wanted to do that, but it's not the same thing as those people who got to live near him and spend lots of time with them and not the same thing as what. Yeah experience I had having a real relationship over time, like the one-on-ones that I offer. It's huge. So once I found that, that was a whole nother journey of my path to be able to work with some people in person and have one-on-one -on -one conversations. Yeah. I think people can have really special relationships in the sense of like, yeah, this is my root guru and I have a personal relationship with them and it's powerful and it's the main person I work with. And it seems like maybe that kind of happens still even across the lineages, mm -hmm. even outside of Tibetan Buddhism, people tend to have a person that they've worked with for a long time yeah. and that's their go-to, even if they work with other people. So I think that seems to happen in some simple way, but the word root guru carries a punch. Thank you for sharing that. I'd love to think through it with you yeah. and what it means to yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Love to hear more. Yeah. I certainly can relate to some aversion to the shadow aspects of that. It brings up similar things for me, root guru, in terms of the shadow and the hierarchy. I don't have to subscribe to idealizing someone to that extent. Uh -huh. I don't uh -huh. have to view them as infallible. And I think when yeah. you view it through an integral framework, which we'll get yeah. into later, but through these different streams yeah. of development, we might say from a waking up perspective, this person is very advanced in their high level of competency or mastery. And that's 
that's why I'm with them. And then mm -hmm. yet from a growing up or psychological perspective, if they're from a traditional Tibetan background, they could be a different stage of development. You know, it could be mm -hmm. a mythic mm -hmm. stage of development like in Ken's. Yeah. And on the cleaning up front, it's good to be helpful with the uncertainty. I don't know this person's shadow. You know, yeah, and right. just using that as an opportunity to look at my own projections. So I've come yeah. to really feel a deep sense of heart connection to Sokni Rinpoche. I feel like I really got yeah. the guru principle totally. when I met him. Yeah. I found that person and yeah. I feel that still. And so I go back and I relate yeah. to him that way. Yeah. And for me, yeah. I think a great teacher, it's really about he doesn't have all the answers. And I love yeah. one thing about him. He'll poke people's yeah. questions if he gets that projection. But yeah. it's really yeah. about what he embodies. And he's inviting you to recognize and, and stabilize that recognition within yourself. Yeah, I love that. I think that's, that sounds beautiful. I think that's how it should feel. And that's what it's about, that heart quality. And also the maturity that you're bringing with it and how see your teachers. Uh, I think that's important too. But the love, the embodiment, the heart connection is wonderful. And I think I've just, I felt that with more than one teacher before. Mm -hmm. So I think that's more for me of like, do I land on one person that have that with more than another? I don't know. But my path was weird because I think it would have been different. You know, I think it would have been different if I were 20 years old now and the kind of connections I might've made with different teachers, but I don't know. Yeah. So I guess the flip side of that coin, that was part of how I, yeah. but the other yeah. part is why I made the comment I did about uh -huh. having the clarity of instruction. As someone who yes. studied with so many different teachers, lots of different traditions, I noticed that you don't get stuck inside a box and you can make more meaningful connections across yeah. systems, right. but it can right. really lead to confusion. And so yeah. it's important to have that it doesn't mean the person is perfect, but that he can answer yeah, questions sure. outside of meditation or Dharma sure. for you. But sure. to have clarity on the instruction and to just follow that, the only thing that I would add as a caveat as someone who's okay. studied and practiced in two traditions that are, I think, fundamentally similar but distinct, like yeah. Shaiva Shakta Tantra and Vajrayana, I uh -huh. would consider a root guru within each. Yeah, because okay, otherwise gotcha. the view is different. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. I think too, also I'll process this a little bit as a teacher. So then there's one that's like, well, what was my experience working with teachers? But then now it's like I have students and I'm probably still processing some of that because now I've worked with people long enough to where some of them see me as one of their teachers. It's like one thing, oh, how do I feel about somebody? And then, oh, how does somebody feel me? Do they? And then what's my reaction response? And so I might have some caution where I'm like, oh, I don't want to have contribute any shadow <laughs> stuff to a person who sees me in a particular light. But I encourage people to work with other folks. And in Buddhist Geeks, we have that policy where a person can't be working with a teacher in too many capacities at one time. What do we call it? The Something to do with guru. It's pretty liberal. It's not too tight, but it, there's some guardrails in there to say like, hey, we're not trying to develop a only one teacher period and they have all the answers, infallible kind of approach there. We want to encourage you to study with more than one teacher. That's the principle there, really. That's healthy. Yeah. So it's, like I said, again, very liberal. It's not too strict or anything like that, but it just provides very minimal guardrails. In episode six, Ryan and I talk about Ryan's personal background with practicing and teaching meditation. We identify several aspects of spiritual and therapeutic practices and their impacts on modern society. We also touch on the importance of integrating and embodying awakening as well. 